Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation about reporting on class and the economy. It's nearly impossible to read the news now without seeing some reporting on the state of the economy, whether we're in a recession, whether we're not in a recession, how Americans are being affected by inflation, the job market, the housing crisis, which is why I wanted to talk to Alyssa Quart. Alyssa is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which helps fund original reporting that challenges traditional narratives about economic class and other issues. She's here in part because she's recently published a book called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, which is all about this American myth of self-reliance, the idea that individuals are responsible for their own socioeconomic success, and how that is portrayed in the press. During my interview with Alyssa, she talks about this myth, where it came from, why it persists, its implications and consequences for journalism, and how the media can try to move past it. Alyssa, great to, great to see you again. Oh, it's great to see you too. Thank you for being here and congrats on the book. Oh, thanks so much. Um, yeah, great to be here. Great to talk about the book. Great to talk about Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the work we've done together. Yeah, and I should mention that Alyssa is a um, contributor to CJR, and we've worked with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which we're thrilled to continue doing, and I'm so happy we've been able to write these stories in the past. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I'm so interested in this topic because it's um, how I grew up with this mythology around the American dream and and what it was going to be. And then I watched it, and this is not about me, but it's interesting because it, I watched it kind of unravel for my family. Like my father especially was really into it. And then he, he, he then he hit basically a wall. And it was like, a, it was a moment of like, um, wait a minute, this, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. <laughs> and I've often thought, the press coverage around advancement and sort of your station was all screwed up. And I also spent some time living in Britain where this sort of class system is very much ingrained, but I think also very outdated. Um, talk to me about your interest in this. Like, why did you decide this is something you wanted to tackle in book form? Well, there's a few reasons, right? One is that like you, we all have a, like a relationship with this particular thing, like about driving yourself. Uh, to achieve, about the familial expectations, societal expectations, ideas about what you should be able to do naturally, ideas about being deserving or undeserving, uh, and how that sort of relates to success, right? So that, that I, ha I have that too, and I can talk about that. But also, because I run the EHRP, I was constantly seeing people at the lower end of the economic gradient who were being kind of punished in by readers and viewers who sent me letters and comments and sent them letters and comments asking why they lived the way they did, asking why they were single parents, why they were um, living in affordable housing or why they were homeless, you know, very accusatory. And I just wanted to get to the bottom of what I consider toxic mythology or folk psychology that brought us here. And, you know, it is a media story because, you know, I now have a search for the term, you know, uh, Google uh, alert for self-made man. And every obituary is a practically describes 
you know, like some local uh, worthy as having been self-made or bootstrapped his way to success, you know, and <laughs> I, I always want to know, is that, did that, was that actually the case? And why are, why are they being framed this way? But it's such a common storyline and a kind of unquestioned storyline often. So I felt like that as somebody who thinks about the media critically, that was also part of my interest. It's so timely because it just seems like a lot of the politics that we're seeing right now is is tied into this. People's fear that their like their kind of God given trajectory has somehow been interrupted. <laughs> um, I'm also really struck. I've been I'm really interested because I grew up in the uh, on the Texas Mexico border, and I'm really interested in like the coverage of migrants and how these are people who are leaving their lives to try to get better lives, which is supposed to be the kind of like American myth, American dream, but they they don't get the benefit of that storyline. So how do you think about this in relation to like electoral politics right now in terms of how important these issues are and how people are thinking about what they're voting for? Yeah, I think people are still thinking of candidates under the guise of, is it, are they Horatio Alger stories? Have they pulled themselves up? I mean, even Biden, it's like boy from Scranton, right? Or whatever. Certainly on the right, you know, uh, I was struck with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, her ad, it was during one of the uh, States of the Union. And it was like this, this ridiculous to me, <laughs> ad that was like where she sort of was claiming to be self-made and having, you know, been resilient. And then she kept mentioning her father, the governor. <laughs> like, okay, this is not, again, this is like something that we need to be puncturing all the time. Well, it's like Trump being a Trump being a kind of self-made man. Absolutely. And that was something that a lot of people in like so-called liberal media was like, of course, we don't need to keep puncturing this. It's so obvious he isn't. But a lot of people don't understand that. And that was, a, there's been, there was a 2018 study I write about in my book in the chapter called Self-Made Voter. They polled voters in Wisconsin and after I think it was the midterms, it was like 2018 and maybe it was a little earlier as well. And and many of the Republican and Republican leaning voters thought that Trump was self-made. And so the, the research teams presented all the information to them about the ways in which he wasn't self-made. Some of them were actually shocked and 10% said they were less likely to vote for him afterwards. So I thought like that was maybe we're, we haven't been leaning in enough to puncturing these stories with people because it seems so self-evident, but you, you just would have to keep repeating the historical and biographical information about people to, to show that it, 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 it is not true, that they are not self-made. Why do you, you're, in your book, you call this rich fiction, this sort of myth. Why do you think journalism has played along as long as it has? Well, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think a lot of journalists come from, I mean, we've talked about this, we've written about this together as OCDR, you published me writing about this. I mean, a lot of people who are editors and writers come from privileged backgrounds. And I think, I'm not going to say that they're prejudiced because of it, but I think that they're probably less likely to see the myth as starkly as say some of the writers at EHRP who experienced homelessness, you know. They would sort of know that just because somebody went to a good college and came from a well-off background, there's a sort of presumption that they're somehow more effective, more deserving, right? That's that's the rich fiction. And doing as much work as I do with people who are who are not from that background or even 
close to being comfortable have sometimes exploded that life, right? I sort of really don't believe in deserving, undeserving binary anymore. You know, on like a cellular level, I don't believe it. I want to refute it. I mean, look, I did go to one of these colleges. I'm not decrying it. I'm just saying that maybe it was the fact that I did work so hard that that showed me that that this idea of deservingness was problematic. What was your own, you you alluded to it just now, but what was your own sort of economic background growing up? What did that look like? Yeah, my parents, they taught at a community college and then they wound up teaching at CUNY, one of the four-year CUNYs. So they were like really middle-class uh, their grandparents, though, were not initially English speakers. I mean, my grandparents, their parents. And so I spent a lot of time with them. And I think that really shaped my sensibility that I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, spent, you know, had a very profound relationship with people who were not necessarily always at ease in English and define, work with their hands and define themselves by that. So, you know, I mean, for a long time, journalism wasn't populated by largely by people from Ivy League schools. I mean, for a long time, it was considered a kind of working class profession, right? I mean, it was it was a trade where a lot of a lot of people, I mean, this goes back in into the 50s and 60s, but um, almost entirely men. A lot of them didn't have college educations um, and they lived in the same neighborhoods as the people who did stuff with their hands, tradespeople, cops. That was the milieu of journalism, and then it and then it changed, and, and people started making a lot more money. Their family backgrounds changed dramatically. I wondered if you tracked the kind of coverage of this and overlaid it over that change and the makeup of journalists and how, how that looks to you. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because it's part of what I think about with our assigning, right? Because like so, economic hardship reporting project, roughly thirty-seven percent of our grantees define themselves as working class or working poor or financially unstable. And there's a lot of things within that, right? Like being financially unstable might be that you can't pay your rent for a couple of months, but that you could you could last year. So it's different from being experiencing homelessness mm. or coming from a working class background. These could all be different things, right? But I do see it a bit of trying to have a corrective, you know, Ray Suarez, uh, one of my collaborators, the great newsman had this line news today is created by the rich for the middle class about the poor. And I see part of what we're doing at EHRP is disrupting that, even if it's just the middle class reporting on itself or, you know, people who are lower income reporting on the rich. I mean, you know, just having a kind of more class aware attempt for inclusion, a class sensitive media which, yeah, it was sort of more organically that when you had reporters who were not college graduates, as you were pointing out, or were in local newsrooms, came from their their towns. The one caveat I'd have to say is a lot of the, these were white men. Um, and when we're trying to recreate this more class-inclusive cadre of reporters, it'd be great if we had, in which what we're, we work for at EHRP, where I think 68% of our contributors are women, that there's a different gender mix, that there's a different uh, race mix. So it's not just what it once was, which was male. I think mostly these were not college graduates. Many of them were men. Um, I think the last major piece you wrote for us was about a year ago. It was called Against Poor Reporting. And you were sort of calling for a way to think differently about this kind of reporting, and which is also what 
the book is, is like asking people to rethink um, what this myth means and how it sort of affects people. Have you seen any shift um, in the last year or two in how these issues are covered? Well, one thing that I feel like I've seen, maybe it's not last year or two, but it's since we started, is there's many, well, there's many more calls to me personally from publications. Like, can you find us people who are, have experienced homelessness or a lower income to contribute? And so that made me feel like, oh, we've, <laughs> we're getting something done, you know, getting these calls from, you know, really first rank publications, right? But also I see people now trying to create fellowships and pipeline uh, writers from class diverse backgrounds as well. I see other nonprofits that aren't even journalistic nonprofits having fellows who are working poor. And I was like, okay, so this is so this is sort of catching on. And also, I mean, honestly, the kind of dawn of the local newsroom, this huge local nonprofit newsroom, the sort of smallish, I don't know, like Arizona Luminarium. I'm just thinking of the, the you know, people, the the new one in Maine. And I met, I met a bunch of these folks. And I was thinking, yeah, this is this is part of the recreation of this because again, they're from these areas, it's not just the kind of so-called coastal elites that are that are now populating these publications. So I felt like, in some ways, like I, uh, this is part of our our project too, you know, to try to uh, diversify geographically as well, because sometimes it's the same thing, right? If you're getting reporters in uh, Mississippi or, or Kentucky who like live there full full time, have been born there. Mm-hmm. And you really work to find more diverse reporters there. It's going to be you're going to be disrupting some of that the master uh, narrative of these elites that met you know their first day of Harvard and went on to run U.S. News and World Report or whatever. <laughs> um, I can see why you you know it's good news that they're calling you saying you know we need help on this, but also in a way it's also problematic. Like well, this is something that they need to develop on their own, right? I mean, um, and I've heard this complaint um, from a lot of different communities where they get calls from reporters saying, hey, can you find me a person? And then they then they kind of lay out the description of exactly what that person should look and sound like, like a casting call approach to journalism. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I, 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 I can see how that's offensive also. And, you know, yeah. Alex Miller, who's our fellow, who had experienced homelessness and re- reported about it wonderfully. And just, I'm going to boast, he just won the ASJA for best first person essay about living in an SRO. When we were, we did a event together and he was just saying, you know, I'm also a gamer, you know, I'm also a millennial, like the ways that he is also, he's part of other, I don't, I'm not going to say minority identities besides like having been homeless, you know, mm-hmm. but he wants the, he wants to be someone who's experienced homelessness, who's a gamer, who really likes to read books you know, and that give that kind of dimension. And when you do have these kind of casting calls, they don't necessarily produce that, right? Because the person's supposed to write about the one thing that they're known for. Yeah. And they're also just looking for people who fit their stereotype about what these people are like. So how would, how, how should newsrooms go about fixing this problem so they don't do that? I outlined them in some of those pieces. I have other things that I, maybe I should write them for you. Uh, Kyle, I have a bunch of other thoughts about, you know, language again, like this is something that's interesting, like people who I've spoken to who are financially struggling reporters hate the language that we use, like entitlements, like we still use words like this or even benefits, you know, like they'd prefer something that was more, you know, value neutral, like 
uh, assistance or subsidies or something like instead of having this kind of beneficent or punitive language that we sort of just accept. There's definitely a moral, there's a moral side to a lot of this language, right? It's, you know, yeah. you've done something wrong, so you're on one side versus if you did everything right, you would be on the other side. Yeah. So that, that that's something we can do. We can start thinking about that. I mean, I, I indicated that we should do person first reporting. I've also heard the opposite though. I've heard some people saying like, I'm homeless, you know, like that they're, they want it to be more direct and frank and the person first is like overplayed, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. It's just like, just let's go back to just saying what it actually is in the vernacular, like what people might say about each other. Like he was homeless, you know, rather than person experiencing homelessness. So anyway, that, that sort of undercut the, the person first thing for me. But um, so that's one thing, the language. And the other thing was like, a pipeline takes investment, right? That takes like a class diversity pipeline. Uh, and we've done that, but we're just one small organization. Major publications could have that too. They could say, we're going to recruit from people who only went to community colleges. There could be selection mechanisms or people who, you know, went to rural colleges, other programs like that too. You could have programs, you know, where you are looking for first person experience of poverty in your poverty reporting, you know, like somebody who has lived some of this. And that's another way you could be recruiting rather than just someone who's kind of like impartial. All of this is so, it's so ingrained. I mean, it's so much a part of the the country, but it's also just a part of journalism. I mean, I just think of all the kind of like sort of high-end fashion coverage, all of the like the tea magazine, like go to this place for $3,000 a night, Um, the sort of like CEO porn, coverage that you still get despite everything that we know (laughs) it's so ingrained and also one other thing this is i would like to write about this like the way that um we bifurcate topics so real estate does not the real estate section of the paper does not include housing yeah and that seems like clear class segregation to me yeah real estate it's just a different kind of real estate and it's as if the people reading about real estate don't want to have any knowledge about affordable housing or, you know, people experiencing homelessness. Same for business sections. I mean, I know Newsday used to have labor in its business sections, but majority business sections have very little labor, if any, labor coverage mm-hmm. or uh, unemployment coverage. <laughs> you know, so I think that that is um, just to reconsider these barriers of genre, really, within our magazines and newspapers. To me, that would be another way to reorient around class and, and around economics. Yeah, I think that's a great project for you to like just like lay out, here's what a modern day newspaper or digital site, here's what the section should be. Um, anything else about like how newsrooms can go about thinking about correcting this problem? We talked about, we talked about hiring. We talked about how some of these stories are presented any anything else for them to think about? I, I, I see all this sort of coming together right now. I mean, I, I just think this immigrate the immigration discussion, and I think it's very much tied up in this. You know, like there's this the undercurrent of like, well, they didn't pay their dues or whatever it is that they were supposed to have done, which is why people don't want them in their communities. I don't. There's racism. There's and I I, I just think this is all kind of balling up to be the focus of this next presidential election. I think it's all there. So anyway, I think I think newsrooms are going to have to reckon with this in a way that they really haven't. So how do we make that happen? Yeah, and I think 
I think the you know one of the um, things that we I think we also collaborated or I wrote this piece for you even longer ago is like ways to get around the compassion fatigue and like notable efforts where people used other forms like and I think it was the ProPublica tape of the child crying when they when they're separated or um, light projections or cartoons or just like things that are a little more imaginative and I've been really loving this um, woman who does these uh, embroidered sayings of journalists. I feel like that kind of work, I don't know how mass it is, but I feel like it kind of cuts through to some people, to their emotions and to their uh, imaginations in a way that sometimes our straightforward reporting doesn't. But I also just think like that we, again, we need to be relying on fortunately, unfortunately, philanthropic dollars to pay for serious reporting on this. And that when we're looking for uh, clicks or we're looking for good numbers or whatever, or ad dollars, that is taking us away sometimes from this kind of work. And this is really what we need as a society. I mean, this just sounds deeply earnest. And that's part of why I, I have such faith in nonprofit reporting as like, that's kind of where I've put my, my energy. They still care about impact. But they also do care about something else. They care about public interest. Um, I remember we did we did a project on journalism and religion, and I sort of did a poll in the office about like how many people like go regularly to services or whatever. And I sort of thought it would be almost nobody, and it was almost everybody. I was surprised by how many people, journalists at least in my little circle, identified themselves as some somewhat religious because it, that's the that's the kind of stereotype of journalists is that the, that they're not. Um, and I'm curious what, what I mean. You talked about these elite backgrounds that a lot of reporters have, but is there like a bigger than we know group of journalists out there for big news organizations that don't fit? Is this a, is this a stereotype that's untrue or not about economic background? I mean, I just know a bunch of different studies that show the mastheads of really major publications like Wall Street Journal and the Times, I think it was like 50% came from Ivy and Ivy Plus institutions graduates. And I just know anecdotally that everyone that I interface with who is not one of our contributors, who's just at these publications, they all went to college and went to four-year colleges, you know, and they often went to very prestigious ones. And especially if they're working in New York, there's often, I mean, this is just the economics of it. They yeah. often have other kinds of support because media jobs are not once what they once were. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different factors that go into this. I mean, when I was coming up in the later 90s, it, even then it was privilege and probably in some ways it was more uh, closed, shut down who could get what job at what point, but you could also survive for longer. Yeah, yeah. So that was how I did it. You know, I was living between freelance assignments for years, you know. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I remember... I went to work for the Wall Street Journal, and I didn't come from, I didn't grow up around here, and I didn't come from any of those schools. And there was definitely a feeling of alienation. Like, I don't even know what these people are talking about. I don't understand some of their references. The cultural awareness piece is a big part. And this was something else that some of our my contributors have mentioned, like not having a smartphone, this was in whatever it was, 2012, and having that expectation. Or, you know, and early in EHRP, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, who founded it, who I, you know, built it up with, wired contributors money so they could rent a car because they 
they, people didn't have credit histories. I mean, just things you don't think about, right? Yeah. On the other side, end of the scale, I also worked at Condé Nast for a bit, and that was in the era where they still had these unpaid internships. Um, where, and that was like a big gateway job into getting a paying job at a place like that. But obviously you couldn't do that if you didn't have resources. I mean, I did my internship at The Voice for a month, and then I had to start working, you know? But the fact that I even did it for a month is, was that because I came from middle-class background, but the fact I didn't do it for longer was because, you know, so that's the, that, that's the kind of little differentiations, right, that we, 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 we probably remember from back in the day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Congrats on the book. Oh, thanks again, Kyle. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. Thanks again to Alyssa for joining us. If you're interested in reading Alyssa's work, head to the show notes. You should definitely uh, buy her book. You can find a link there. And read some of her pieces that have appeared in CJR. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.